Khaled Mashal, the former leader of Hamas, has declared today a global day of jihad, specifically throughout the West, after the terror attack last week on the state of Israel. This is unfortunate, as later today I'm scheduled to travel to my old stomping grounds of New York City, which happens to be, by the numbers, both the most Muslim and the most Jewish city in the United States. It is also, of course, the site of the worst terror attack in American history, also perpetrated by radical Muslims. Lots of people throughout the West are changing their plans today. Closing offices, closing schools, staying home. And I'm all for prudence. But I am very much against worldly fear, which is why I'm not changing any of my plans today. A good explanation of why not was once given by a sort of personal hero of mine, Richard Overton, who died five years ago at the age of 112. Mr. Overton was at that time, and for some years prior, the oldest surviving World War II veteran. He credited his longevity in part to smoking 12 cigars a day and putting whiskey in his morning coffee. You can see why he was a personal hero. Here is some advice that Mr. Overton had on war and life at the age of 109. You see a soldier with a gun, you don't see him turn around and go back this way. He may go sideways, but he ain't gonna turn around and go back. Uh Uh-uh. Okay, how hot them bullets is, he ain't gonna go back. So yeah, when you go in there, you just say, well, God got me now. See? He's gonna take care of you. If you if it's your time to go, that bullet gonna get you. If it ain't your time to go, that bullet going over your head. It ain't gonna hit you. So man will kill you, but God's the one to keep you alive. There are two kinds of fear relevant to the global day of jihad. Worldly fear and fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit, a reverent fear akin to awe that perfects our hope of remaining in God's grace. Worldly fear is the opposite. It's selfish, cowardly, and opposed to freedom. Fear ye not them that kill the body and are not able to kill the soul, but rather... Fear him that can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And not one of them shall fall on the ground without your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. Better are you than many sparrows. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. Welcome back to the show. Breaking, shocking news. Jada Smith and Will Smith have apparently been separated for six or seven years now. Shocking, breaking. Uh, It actually is somewhat shocking because they said they wouldn't get divorced. Uh, We will get into that because it actually has political ramifications. First, though, the war is spreading. The Israel Air Force uh, struck Damascus International Airport yesterday in Syria. They did this a day ahead of the Iran foreign minister's visit to Syria. So uh, they didn't take out the Iranian foreign minister, but they certainly sent a a warning message. And now the war is not only in the state of Israel, it's not only in Gaza, it's not only in southern Lebanon, it's now also expanded to Syria. What is the U.S. interest here? The U.S. interest is to contain the war. 
Other nations have other interests. Some nations might have the interest of regime change in Iran. Some nations might have the interest of expanding the war beyond where it is already. Some nations might have all sorts of interests. This is the holy land we're talking about. This is a a very prized piece of real estate. And every even semi-major power on earth has some interest here. The U.S. interest is contain the war. Obviously, to retrieve our hostages as well. I consider that almost a separate question. But as a matter of war policy, you're going to hear a lot of voices clamoring for more war, regime change, bombing the mullahs, uh, somehow uh, attacking, re- trying to weaken Russia through this war and not merely through the war in Ukraine. Uh, China is kind of sitting on the sidelines here. They didn't quite come out and condemn the Hamas attack, or they sort of tried to do it. But there are going to be a lot of people calling for more and more war, including U.S. senators. That is not the American interest. The American interest here, it's not to stay at home and put our heads in the sand. The American interest is to contain the war as much as possible. Uh, Speaking of foreign policy voices, some people are now asking how we got into the position where we could have a global day of jihad and have Americans, have the Brits, have the French, have all people throughout the West afraid of such a day. The obvious answer as to how we got there was mass migration. And no less a foreign policy architect than Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger, Secretary of State for Richard Nixon. The man is 100 years old. The man has been an influential foreign policy architect for well over half a century. What now, for something like 60, 70 years. Henry Kissinger said, the key, the big mistake here, mass migration. What's a grave mistake to let in so many people of totally different cultural and religious and concepts because it creates a pressure group inside each country that does that. Very politically incorrect. You're not allowed to say that. Henry Kissinger, look, Henry, I know some people hate Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger has, has made some mistakes in his career. I think the clearest example of a mistake Henry Kissinger made was that he was one of the biggest proponents of soccer in the United States. He's credited uh, with driving the increased popularity of soccer. So I'm not saying the guy always got things right, but he does have a lot of wise things to say. And he's totally right about this. This is something that all serious statesmen and political philosophers have known for all of human history. And yet today, even conservative Republicans are not allowed to say it. When conservative Republicans attack migration, they, they or criticize it in any way, they have to say, well, look, I support more and more legal immigration. I think we should have endless legal immigration, but I'm opposed to illegal immigration. Yes, illegal immigration is worse than legal immigration, but Mass migration is the problem. Over the last 60, 70 years, we have seen the largest movement of people ever in recorded history of people moving into the United States. Uh, That's a problem. When you mix groups of people that don't have very much in common, it creates conflict. This This is an observation that Dante hears in the Divine Comedy from his illustrious ancestor in paradise, in the canticle that is taking place in heaven. Uh, Dante's illustrious ancestor, Cacciaguida, says, yeah, the problems really began in Florence when they started mixing people around who didn't have a whole lot in common. You, you got a lot of conflict. He is clearly 
right here. This is something that the West needs to deal with. The West right now has no limiting principle on migration. The West has convinced itself that its culture is is totally open to everybody, that there, there are no requirements for becoming a part of this culture, that there's no legitimate reason to keep people out of your civilization, that there's no legitimate distinction between citizen and foreigner, that there's no legitimate distinction between nations and other nations. The West has convinced themselves of that. Obviously the left, but a lot of people on the right as well, self-styled conservatives. And uh, so here, here you have uh, Kissinger coming in and saying, even if he made some unwise decisions in his in his youth, the guy's 100 years old. I think he's probably learned a thing or two. He says mass migration was a grave mistake. Unfortunately, we're learning that a little bit late at this point, but it's a lesson that at the very least we should learn right now. We got to talk about it. When you want to talk to your friends, you got to check out Pure Talk. Right now, go to puretalk.com slash Knowles. I've got to tell you about something that speaks to the very core of what we believe as Americans, about a veteran-owned company on a mission to make a real difference in the lives of our military members. I'm talking to you about Pure Talk. Here at The Daily Wire, we love what Pure Talk is doing. Our veterans gave everything they could to protect our nation, and Pure Talk understands the sacrifices they've made. They've set an ambitious goal to eliminate $10 million in military debt by Veterans Day, but they can't do it alone. They need your help. When you switch to Pure Talk's lightning-fast 5G network, they will donate a portion of every new order to this noble cause. You can make a real difference just by choosing superior cell service. Pure Talk's plans start at just 20 bucks a month, offering unlimited talk, text, more data, and a mobile hotspot. Just go to puretalk.com slash Knowles, to make the switch. You will save a lot of money. You will get exactly the same great service. Let's rally together and show our unwavering support of veterans. puretalk.com slash Knowles to switch to Pure Talk today. It's the right move. It's the American way. Speaking of our democracy, a whirlwind of news has occurred in the House of Representatives, and we haven't even really gotten to it because foreign events have been a little a little bit more interesting and a little bit more pressing. But you know that a handful of Republicans and a bunch of Democrats threw out the former Republican Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, then there was a race for speaker, and there were two guys who threw their hats in the ring. That was Steve Scalise, who has been on the leadership track for a long time among Republicans, and Jim Jordan, who is terrific. He's a favorite of many conservatives. Uh, according to measures of candidates' conservatism and anti-establishmentism, uh, Steve Scalise was certainly more the liberal Republican candidate, certainly more the establishment candidate. And Jim Jordan was is ranked much more conservative and much more anti-establishment. And unfortunately, when the Republicans met behind closed doors, because this is, this is not a popular election, this is an election for members of Congress, uh, Steve Scalise won. And it was somewhat close. It was 113 to 99, but still Scalise clearly won. And this was viewed as a... Uh, an insult to Donald Trump because Trump backed Jim Jordan. So this was played out in the media as once again, Donald Trump loses. Once again, the Republican Party not heeding what Donald Trump has to say. Uh, however, to me, that shows that nothing has changed really since 2016. It has always been the case since 2015, 2016, up through the present, that most professional Republicans, Republican politicians, political commentators, GOP consultants, most of them have opposed Trump and the kind of candidates that Trump endorses. What's been strange about that is that most Republican voters support Trump. 
So there is a divergence between the professional Republican class, the professional conservative class, and the actual conservative voters who decide the elections at the ballot box, when elections are decided at the ballot box. Uh, that's what happened in 2016. All of the, disproportionately, the, the Republican journalists, talkers, commentators, pundits, strategists, blah, 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 electeds, they were against Trump. Didn't matter. Trump kept dominating the primary. Then in 2020, a lot of people who had opposed Trump sort of softened because they had no other choice and they, they would have been totally shut out of Republican politics like Bill Kristol or uh, David French or those kind of people uh, had they remained opposed to Trump. So they kind of softened on Trump a little bit. But then 2024 rolls around and many of the same people, if not all the same people, come out and oppose Trump again. This is no surprise at all. Now, you might say, well, I, I think it was a dumb idea to nominate Trump in 2016, or it's a dumb idea to nominate him in 2024. I'm not making any comment on the wisdom of doing that or not. I'm just pointing out that there is today, as there was in 2016, as there basically always has been, a major disagreement between the professional conservatives and the ordinary conservative voters. That is happening again, and it's playing out yet again in the primary. Forget about the House race for a second. It's playing out again in the primary because disproportionately, the GOP consultants, the donors, the talking class, the, the pundits, the, they favor other candidates than Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, maybe Tim Scott. And disproportionately, the voters, at least according to every single poll, favor Donald Trump over those other candidates. That's just a disagreement among the GOP. And the people are going to say that the pundits are idiots, and the pundits are going to say that the people are idiots, but that is simply a fact. And when it comes to electoral politics and democracy, it's probably wiser, probably wiser to be on the side of the people. Now, getting back to the House race, Steve Scalise, even though he got the Republican nomination, he just dropped out of the race because he didn't have the votes. There were conservatives in the GOP caucus in the House that said, we're not going to vote for Steve Scalise. And we've got such a razor-thin majority in the Congress, and, and Scalise is not going to get the votes of the Democrats. So, sorry, Scalise, you're out. Which means that, it, that Jim Jordan still could be the speaker, which I'm really upset about. Not because I don't think Jim Jordan would be a great speaker. I think he'd probably be the best speaker we've had in a long time. But because I really like Jim Jordan, and I think he's a good guy, and I wouldn't wish that job upon him because that job is the worst job in Washington, D.C., being the Republican Speaker of the House is, I would rather be cleaning out the Porta Johns on the National Mall, probably, than being the Republican Speaker of the House. It's totally thankless. It's very difficult to succeed. It's like herding cats. But on the bright side, we could get a pretty good speaker because it could be Jim Jordan. Now, speaking of uh, what's going on in Washington, D.C., this is one of my other reasons to keep Jim Jordan out of the speakership. Is it not, He would be great. He would be so phenomenal. He's a terrific guy. But he does great work on the Judiciary Committee, and he's done a great job investigating Democrats. And look at the stuff that we're getting right now. Joe Biden has just been discovered to uh, have exchanged 29,000 emails with family and business associates of the Biden family from his vice president email account. So, Joe, you know, Joe Biden had a number of pseudonymous email accounts. He came up with all these pseudonyms to conduct the particularly shady business while he was VP. But uh, among the, this is according to America First Legal, which does a great job on unveiling this kind of stuff. 
he used his VP email account to exchange more than 29,000 emails with his son Hunter, with his brother Jim Biden, with their business groups, which directly contradicts claims that Biden made during the 2020 campaign. And what's really strange about it is, it means that Joe Biden must have a lot of thoughts about the weather. It's a, because Joe Biden initially, he said, I don't know anything about my son's business. I don't even, I don't know what he's doing. Then he said, okay, maybe I know a little bit. Maybe I heard, I had a few conversations, but I wasn't involved. Okay, maybe I was a little bit involved. Maybe I wrote some handwritten notes to his business partners. Maybe I invited them to, to lunches with the leader of China. Maybe, uh, but I, you know, look, I, it's not like I was in these meetings. I would say, okay, I was in this meeting. I was on more than 20 phone calls with Hunter's business associates. But this is what the excuse became. I only, I was only talking about the weather. We were just exchanging pleasantries. 29,000 emails about the weather. That's more emails about the weather than Al Roker has ever sent. That is, no one has that many thoughts about the weather. I'm starting to think Joe Biden might have been conducting some shady business. Now, speaking of troubled families, We've heard for years that Will Smith and Jada Smith have a little bit of a difficult marriage. This came to a climax when during the Oscars, Chris Rock made an anodyne joke about Jada Smith and Will Smith got up there and smacked him across the face. It was very, very strange. But for years, they've, Will and Jada Smith have been open about uh, cheating on each other. And, you know, Jada Smith had some very young boyfriend and it just seems rough. But they said, we're not going to get divorced ever Bad, bad Marriage for Life, which was a play on Bad Boys for Life. And well, now Jada Smith has revealed to the Today Show that she and Will have been separated for seven years. Why did the relationship fracture? Oh, well, why it fractured? That, that's a lot of things. Yeah. And I think by the time we got to 2016, we were just exhausted with trying. I think we were both kind of still stuck in our fantasy of what we thought the other person should be. Oh. Jada says she considered a legal divorce, but could never go through with it. I made a promise that there will never be a reason for us to get a divorce. We will work through whatever. And I just haven't been able to break that promise. Good. That's good. I know everyone's going to attack Jada Smith because she seems just absolutely awful in most ways. But I tell you, that is a really redeeming statement that she just made. She said, even though we have this terrible relationship and even though it's Hollywood, so everyone gets divorced, and even though we've been living separate lives and even though we've been cheating on each other and even though we've been doing this and that and the other thing, I can't bring myself to get a divorce because I made a vow and it just seems wrong. And even me, living in Hollywood, being a big lib, doing all this crazy stuff, even me, I know it's wrong and I don't want to do it. Good, good. Follow that voice. Arnold Schwarzenegger has a self-help book coming out. He just came out and uh, explained that he doesn't want to talk about the explosion of his marriage anymore because that is the biggest failure he's ever had. He said, I blew up my family. No failure has ever felt worse than that. Darius Rucker from Hootie and the Blowfish, he, he just split with his wife after 20 years of marriage. He said, you feel like a failure. You try to express those feelings and it's hard to say and it's hard to put that on paper. You try to do it as real as you can. I'm not a big talk to you guy, but I can sit down and write a song about it. That stuff hurts. You feel like a failure, but we're still a family. A piece of paper is not going to change that. We're still a family and that's all because Beth is awesome. She knows it's best for the kids. She's a great human being. Okay. 
you see really big people here, really big, successful, lauded, praised people saying divorce is the biggest failure I've ever had. I, in some cases saying divorce is such an, a, a scary failure. I, I can't bring myself to do it, even though we're separated. Some people saying I did get divorced and I'm rich and I'm famous and I'm powerful and I'm this and I'm that. I was the governor of California and it's the biggest failure ever. Even huge stars are claiming that the biggest failure they could possibly have is divorce. Jada Smith saying, even with our awful marriage, I can't bring myself to do it. And, and then Hootie and the Blowfish over here, uh, Darius Rucker, makes an even more insightful point. He says, we're still a family. He says, even though we've been divorced, we're still a family. We, it's, we got this piece of paper that says we're divorced, but we, we're still involved in each other's lives. We're still, we can't pull away from one another which is an observation that some of us have been making for years. Divorce is, practically speaking, almost always impossible, especially when there's kids. So, you know, the church says, the Christian view is that divorce is not possible. What God has joined, let no man separate. Uh, Certain Christian denominations accept divorce, but the vast majority do not. And for the vast majority of of the history of the church, divorce has not been recognized or accepted in any way. And obviously the Catholic church still holds to that. Um, Even if you don't believe in God or Christianity or religion or anything like that, the point expressed perfectly by the church that divorce is not a possibility, what God has joined, no man can separate, is expressed by Darius Rucker in this really practical way where he says, you know, just Practically speaking, we still got the kids. We still see each other. We still talk. We still have to interact with one another. So you can't, you actually just can't do it. It's not possible. And I, I hate to give Hollywood some credit here, but they deserve a little bit of credit, which is they're the, the people who seem most likely to divorce, these Hollywood stars, they're warning people about the reality of that. They're saying, don't fall into the same thing that I've fallen into. It's not pleasant. It's not even really possible. Now, when you want to feel nice and good and healthy, uh, you probably also want your dog to feel nice and good and healthy. That's why you got to check out Rough Greens. Right now, go to roughgreens.com slash Michael. You know my pal, Matt Walsh, has been giving Rough Greens to his dog. I don't have a dog. I'm not a huge dog person. But I decided to send some to my stepbrother, who has this beloved little miniature Australian shepherd type thing that I don't really like, but I want to make sure the dog gets good food. So I sent it to him. Naturopathic doctor Dennis Black, the founder of Rough Greens, is focused on improving the health of every dog in America. I had no idea that dog food is dead food. It contains very little nutritional value. Think about it. Nutrition is not brown. It's green. Let Rough Greens bring your dog's food back to life. Rough Greens is a supplement that contains all the necessary vitamins, minerals, probiotics, omega oils, digestive enzymes, and antioxidants that your dog needs. You don't have to go out and buy new dog food. You just sprinkle Rough Greens on their food every day. Dog owners are raving about it. It supports healthy joints, improves bad breath, boosts energy levels, and so much more. Head on over there right now. Get a free Jumpstart trial bag so your dog can try it. A free Jumpstart trial bag can be at your door in just a few business days. Roughgreens.com slash Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, or call 844-RUFF, R-U-F-F-123. That is R-U-F-F-Greens.com slash Michael, or call 844-RUFF, R-U-F-F-123 today. The two most important decisions that you will need to make this month are as follows. One, trick or treat. You got to pick one. Two, yes or no. 
Yes or No is the perfect Halloween party game, especially with the new Conspiracy Theory expansion pack. Tackle topics such as aliens, cryptids, vampires, demons for all your Halloween hot takes. If you already have the classic game, be sure to secure the Conspiracy Pack in time for all your spooky soirees. Don't wait. Go to dailywire.com shop today. My favorite comment is from Devin Rossi, 5966, who says, if climate control is the greatest threat we face, then the thermostat in our homes is a greater weapon than we could have ever guessed. You make such a good point. The greatest threat that we face is the sun monster ticking up the temperature like a one one hundredth of a degree every thousand years. And so what that means is you need to arm yourself. Not with a gun, not with a nuclear weapon. No, with that little thermostat and the one you just go, okay, problem solved. We're good. We're good now. Very, uh, do you, do you work for uh, skunk works or something? Are you working for some very clandestine weapons development realm of the U.S. government? Because that that was a brilliant observation. Speaking of Hollywood, Gwyneth Paltrow just revealed where she stores her Oscar. And I love it. And what a beautiful Academy Award. My doorstop. (laughs) It works perfectly. I love it. And it's a sort of a tee-hee-hee, ha-ha, look, we're filming this little take on Gwyneth Paltrow's home. And oh my goodness, outside, she's she's got her Oscar as a doorstop. Oh yeah, it's a great doorstop. I love this. This is a really healthy attitude when it comes to something like fame. There was a uh, famous uh, journalist, magazine editor, and Catholic priest who uh, in his home, he kept all of his pictures with statesmen and prominent people in the bathroom. And a friend of mine once asked this man, why, why are they all in the bathroom? He said, because that's exactly where the glories of this world belong, <laughs> is in the bathroom. Uh, this is a healthy attitude when it comes to something like fame, especially Hollywood, which is so rotten, where nothing really is as it seems, where so much of of Hollywood is a facade and just beneath the glitz and the glamour, you have decay and you have, you know, uh, the decline, you have the collapse of families and you have people selling their bodies to get parts and you, it's just pretend. I mean, the whole place is just pretend. And so when, when you're faced with something that is pretend, what, ephemeral, really fleeting, then that's a good way to treat those glories. Uh, that would not be a healthy attitude, however, when it comes to something that really matters, like family, like honor, like dignity, like piety, like sanctity. Then you would not want to treat that as just something to be left out in the rain to stop up your gate outside or anything. Then you would want to, you would want to cherish that. You would want to treat it very well. And one of the big problems in the modern world is we totally flip it. So in the in the modern world, we treasure fame and notoriety and clicks on social media, we treasure that as our most dearly held possession. We would never leave that out in the rain, stopping up a door. No, we, we spend our efforts, we spend our time, we spend our, our love on that. And we let things like, you know, family, honor, dignity, <laughs> modesty, uh, we, we, we forget about that stuff. You don't need to be a Hollywood star to recognize this. How many people sacrifice their family on the altar of 
career or on the altar of professional ambition or on the altar of fun, on the altar of hedonism, on the altar of selfishness. We do that all the time. This is real. Some people are going to look at Gwyneth Paltrow and say, she's totally crazy. She's being disrespectful to the Academy and to Hollywood by this top professional achievement. She's just throwing, no, that's where it belongs is out in the garden. It belongs out there stopping up a door. We need to cherish the things that are worth cherishing. We need to uh, keep in proper perspective the things that might seem glittery and pretty in this world, but will not last. Speaking of health, only 2% of Americans have received the new COVID booster. Have you gotten your latest Fauci-ouchie? Have you gotten your latest experimental jab? Only 7 million Americans have received the updated versions of the COVID jab. That's compared to 56.5 million people who received last year's version. My reaction to this news is, it's crazy that that number is so high. Absolutely crazy that that number is. How, how is it that 7 million Americans, after being lied to, with lies that have been disproven time and time again in really practical ways, like they tell you, if you get the COVID vax, you will not get the virus. And then you get the COVID vax and you get the virus. And they say, well, no, no, okay. If you get the COVID vax, sorry. If you get the COVID vax, then you will not spread the virus. And then what happens? You get the COVID vax, you get COVID, and then you spread the virus. Well, <clears throat> all right, hold on here. If you get the COVID vax, you will not suffer any side effects. It is totally 100% safe. And then what happens? People get nerve damage. People get blood clots. People die of blood clots. People get myocarditis. People get pericarditis. Young people who faced very little risk from the coronavirus were getting these jabs and facing consequences because of it. Very negative health outcomes. Okay, well, the jab is not effective. And it, ultimately, they had to promise that the jab was, the, the way you knew it was effective is, trust us, it would have been worse if you didn't have it. it. The jab didn't accomplish any of the things that we promised you it would accomplish. But trust us now, it's going to accomplish a totally unfalsifiable thing because it's going to be a hypothetical. It's going to be, well, had you not, it would have been a lot worse. So we have no evidence that the jab was effective at doing anything at all. And we know for a fact that the jab wasn't nearly as safe as they told us it would be. And then the next thing they said was, yeah, so uh, you got to get another one. And what was amazing was a ton of people got another one. And then you know what they said after that when that wasn't effective either or particularly safe? They said, yeah, actually, you got to get another one, actually. You got to get a couple, you got to get like two or three more. And then they did it. 56 and a half million people got Last year's version. And, you know, it's like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice. Hey, hey the point is you're not going to fool me again, to quote George W. Bush. Fool me three times, fool me four times, fool me five times. And yet again this year, even after all this stuff was just totally debunked, the social distancing rules, they, that was proven to be just completely arbitrary. The COVID gazillion people death count, that was debunked too. That, that number was extraordinarily artificially inflated. And still, 7 million people have gotten the updated version of the COVID jab. This, this is why democracies can't have nice things. <laughs> this is, that's bad. Seven million, who knows? Let's see how many more people get it. Uh, before we go, 
Uh, Andrew Tate is in the news yet again. Andrew Tate, you know, is something of a favorite among a certain segment of young right-wingers. He's also an OnlyFans pimp who's who's a criminal in Romania because, uh, because of his pimping. Because pimping ain't easy, and it also ain't legal in a lot of places. Uh, and Andrew Tate is also a, a convert to Islam. So I, I guess that's better than being an atheist. But I don't know. His version of Islam doesn't seem even like the best version of Islam. And uh, Andrew Tate's reaction to the Hamas terror attack on the state of Israel uh, and now the ensuing war is, there is but one certainty in this mess. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad, P-B-U-H, what is, oh, peace, peace be upon him, is the messenger of Allah. That was his take right after the terror attack. That was his take on October 7th. And he's a, in some quarters, probably not as much anymore, but in some quarters, a conservative icon. This reminds me of a good rule of thumb. You are known by the friends you keep. You are actually known by the friends you keep. And the kind of circles that Andrew Tate is moving in. Actually, I do have a, a couple peop- friends of mine who are friends with Andrew Tate. But broadly, that would be the exception to the rule, I think, and because they were friends for a long time. Uh, but of, of the people that Andrew Tate is cavorting with now, you know, the pimps and the prostitutes and the radical Muslims, and the, that doesn't, generally speaking, you know, you, you look at that and you say, that's not, He's probably not in agreement with me on a lot of things. And then you look broadly at the pro-Hamas argument, and the pro-Hamas argument is being joined by BLM. BLM is totally crazy. It's being joined by the radical leftists. It's being joined by Harvard students, but I repeat myself. It's be- and you look around and you say, huh, I don't want to be totally prejudicial here, but generally you are known by the friends you keep. Are you still getting your chocolate from woke companies? Get Jeremy's chocolate instead. Right now, you can save big with 25% off. Get great deals on our famous he, him with nuts and she, her nutless uh, in full size or our shareable microaggression size. Perfect for giving out to friends and family. Time is running out. So stock up now in time for Halloween. Go to jeremyschocolate.com today. Finally, finally, we've arrived at my favorite time of the week when I get to hear from you in the mailbag. Mailbag sponsored by Pure Talk. Go to puretalk.com slash Knowles today. Take it away. Hey, Dirty Mike, Mr. Reality here. I had a question for you on the potential of World War III breaking out. A lot of people say that because uh, we have nuclear weapons, Russia has nuclear weapons, China has nuclear weapons, all these major powers have nuclear weapons, that there would never be another world war. My thoughts are no one's going to actually use their nuclear weapon unless they're about to be utterly destroyed. Because, for example, say the United States invades part of China. Um, is China really going to launch nuclear weapons and destroy all of China in our retaliation immediately? Or are they going to fight at the border and only use the weapons if there's no other choice? So my thoughts are the nuclear weapons are a defense against total annihilation of a country, but not against a world war itself. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Thanks. Yes. Uh, the, the nukes, we're seeing this happen right now. The nukes are not deterring regional or multi-regional, or at what point do we call it global conflict? Um, but I'm I'm not agreeing with your point that the nuclear weapons would not be used except in some kind of existential situation. We haven't seen it yet. We haven't seen tactical nukes exactly, but people have this idea that nuclear weapons, you know, the moment you set one off, basically the whole world explodes. And that's not really true. 
It's not, that's not really how nuclear weapons work. Nuclear weapons are, are very scary and it's not a good thing to use. But we've set off a lot of nuclear weapons, especially when we were testing the nuclear weapons. Forget about use in war, obviously at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, but we've set off a lot of nuclear weapons. It didn't, didn't end the world. The uh, fallout and the blast zones and everything are, are significantly smaller than, than a lot of people think for most nuclear weapons. So I'm not quite so placid that they won't be used in, in some war in some tactical way. Maybe not one of these, you know, nuclear weapons that blows out a city, uh, but some kind of nuclear weapon. I'm not, I'm not convinced that that could not be used. Just because they haven't been used in 70 years. 70 years is a pretty short time. Next question. Hello, Michael. Lacrimafix Maximus. If you don't mind, I would like to ask your opinions about one of the contentious topics of the Catholic Church's history, that being the fabled female pope, Pope Joan. Do you believe her story to be that one of truth, fiction, or a little calm A and a little calm B? Love to hear your response this Friday and wish the best for you and your family, especially given your recent comments about Biden. Thank you very much. Good question. Uh, for those who don't know, Pope Joan is this legendary uh, fable, you know, as, as you say, uh, female pope from, I think, the ninth century. Uh, and then this was, uh, you, you see, I th- is it in Siena Cathedral? or In one of, the, one of the cathedrals, there's actually a bust of Pope Joan, you know, this, this legendary female pope, uh, though that was removed pretty quickly after it was put up. And in 1600 or 1601, the then Pope said, it's a, it's fake news. Uh, it is fake news. I'm, I'm, I don't see any evidence that Pope Joan existed or that Pope Joan was actually a woman. Probably the fable comes from a polemical attack on one of the Pope Johns from the, uh, eighth or ninth century, maybe 10th century, I guess. Um, but no, it's a kind of a fun story. I like these fun stories. I like legends. The thing about legends is, while legends are not true, they often have some semblance of truth. Even legends about the saints that, that probably did not literally happen tell you something about the character of the saints. And so as a polemical attack on one of the actual male popes, uh, it, it seems to make much more sense than a, a woman just secretly becoming pope. Next question. Hi, Michael. I'm going through what's called the quiet martyrdom of the virtuous woman, and I'd like to have your advice on it. Um, Basically, what this is, is that when uh, a virtuous, good Christian woman is younger, um, guys don't want to be with her because she's virtuous. She won't do things on dates. Um, You know, she waits for marriage. And now that we're older in our 30s, good virtuous men don't want us because... We're in our 30s, even though we've already been through the trial in our 20s. Um, so you have advice for us, uh, these women looking for her vocation as a wife and a mother in her 30s. And seems like nobody wants us. Thanks, Michael. Great question. You are truly one of the chief victims of the sexual revolution. The Probably your group in particular is the is the chief victim because the sexual revolution says, forget about all the old rules, forget about honor and chastity and modesty and sexual ethics. Sleep around. If it feels good, do it. And some women don't want to do that, but men come to expect it. And then men, maybe they sow their wild oats and then 
they decide to settle down and get married, but uh, they don't want to. Then they find some, you know, hot young thing or something, 22 year old. I'm not saying you're not a hot young thing too, but you know, you, as you point out, you're, you're though perhaps hot, uh, somewhat older than the 22 year old girls. And so you you find yourself in this pickle where, you know, you've, you've done the right thing in your twenties and uh, now you say, well, now nobody wants me. I, I think that that latter part though is just not true. I have, I have many friends in their thirties who are in the same spot as you. And even, even uh, friends who were not, you know, totally chased in their 20s, but they're still in the same spot as you. I mean, there are lights because the, the problem is just so much broader. The delaying of marriage for everyone is screwing things up for, for women in particular. Uh, my advice, though, is there are a lot of men who are in the same position. I get this question from men probably just as often as I get it from women. We're saying, hey, I'm in my 30s and I just haven't met a girl who likes me and I don't know how to go on dates and I don't know how to do anything. Um, so my, my advice to you would be, Go, go where the men are, you know, go. My advice would be go to a traditional Latin mass because everyone's pretty young and is on the same page as what you're talking about. And they're interested in getting married and having like a thousand kids. So I don't know if you're Catholic or not. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what your circumstances are in that way, but you've got to go where the men are. And I would be a little forward because you're saying all these men don't want me and I'm unlovable and I'm undesirable, but you're giving the men too much credit. You're thinking that these men are all Lotharios and Don Giovannis, but they're they're usually not. The men are, are just as awkward and and incapable of interacting with the opposite sex uh, as as you, I think, maybe mistakenly think yourself to be. That the sexual revolution just blew up sexual relations. It's it's you know not just just one sex or the other. So I would recommend going where the men are in real life, in real person, joining clubs, going to the right kind of a church, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And I'd approach the men and say, hey, you want to go get a cup of coffee? I, I know it's weird. I know it's weird. But sometimes, you know, in, when the culture has gotten so completely crazy and chaotic, you've got to be a little unconventional to get back to normal. Next question. Hi, Michael. My name's Mallory. I'm a 20-year-old college senior, and I'm also a cradle Catholic. Last week, you had a few segments on your shows talking about SSRIs and other mental health drugs. Um, I just wanted some advice. I have been on SSRIs for about a year, and um, I've struggled with major depressive disorder my whole life since I was probably about six or seven, mm. and I can't imagine going back to my life before I started these drugs because they have helped me. But I wanted to know your advice from a faith standpoint on things that I could do to improve my mental health through God. Thank you so much. I love your show. Thank you so much. Really, really great question. And I'm, I'm not saying that these drugs can never be helpful, at least for a short period of time. I'm not saying they can be helpful, but I'm not, I'm not saying they can never be helpful. Uh, I am quite convinced that one in eight Americans should not be on these drugs. And when you take men out of the picture, when you just look at women, it, the numbers are even crazier. I'm convinced of that. I don't think that we should be pumping powerful psych drugs into a huge proportion of our population, including very young people. Um, but maybe on the rare occasion, maybe it does something to help you along the way. You, you raise this question at the end. You say, do you have any, any uh, advice regarding faith that could help my mental health question? So I, I guess I would need to know where you're starting from. Because... Obviously, you have not perfectly identified the source of your depressive problems. You're saying that these drugs work, so that's why I'm glad you're feeling better than you did before. And you've had this from a very young age. I would just 
wonder if maybe some cognitive behavioral therapy might be helpful here, if maybe some spiritual counseling with a, a priest might be helpful here. Because is it the case that, you know, your parents got divorced at age six and, and, you, and then you got depressed at age seven and never got over it? Many such cases. Uh, well, in that case, I would work through that issue. Is it that a loved one died when you were six or seven and that, that spurred your depressive episode, which has persisted for a long time? Is it that your, your family had a crisis of faith at six or seven and that has led over time to depressive episodes? I just don't know. So I would try to identify that problem. And to, to, to give you a really blunt answer on faith, it is in fact the case that one ultimately cannot be happy without uh, a healthy attitude and direction toward God. It is, it is not possible. Uh, we've known this since the good old ancient Greeks up through modernity. And as the modernity has turned away from God, people have gotten miserable. So uh, I would, uh, to quote Andrew Clavin, I would live as though God exists for 60 days. Just pray and you know, go to church and be, act as though God exists and uh, see what that does to you. And then I would try to identify if, if it is possible, I'm not saying it is, maybe it's just a quirk of your brain, but uh, if it is possible, try to identify what might be underlying your depressive condition. Because more often than not, I think, there is a, uh, a reason that one can point to that is not just totally uh, random. Uh, last, last mailbag question to get to before we get to the mail block. We have a really important mailbag or a really important member block segment today, but mailbag question, mother-in-law drama. Uh, Michael, I had a question regarding a situation with my mother-in-law. This woman is not the kindest person, is very two-faced. One day she'll smile at you, the other she's sending my kids handwritten letters about how much of a piece of work I am, while also sending angry text messages to me. Regardless of all this, my wife still likes to have her visit, and this year I decided I would leave during the time she's visiting. When my wife picked me up from the airport, she started to cry and go on about how she needs me home when she visits because it's too much without me there. She states that as her husband, I should support her while her mother is there. My question to you is part of me says I should be there, but after close to 20 years of this, I'm at my boiling point, and if I see her, I will say all the things I've held back. What would be the best way to go about this? I feel like I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, you, you let this go on too long. Um, so there's no way to fix the past. But for instance, if your mother-in-law uh, sends letters to your kids dissing you, that is when you calmly call your mother-in-law and say, hey, you're out, you're out. We're not going to see you for a little while and you're going to need to fix your behavior and you're going to apologize to the children for doing this and scandalizing them. And if you don't do that, we're never seeing you again. And because I'm the head of my household and this is my family and you're not going to threaten it. Even you, to whom I owe some modicum of respect, that's why I'm calling you respectfully, uh, but you can't do this. This is my family and I'm the head of my household. Uh, you know, that would have been a good thing to do 20 years ago. I guess now it's a little bit late for that, probably. I don't know how old your kids are. You, maybe you had kids later on in your marriage. Um, so the, 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 it's in the little things that the rot begins, to quote the butler on the crown. So it, uh, you know, it, these things fester and fester, and you say, now I'm at my boiling point. I think you're right, though. You shouldn't flee when your mother-in-law comes to town, okay? You, it's your house. You're, you're the head of the family. So you actually do have a responsibility to be there. You know, you have, you have a responsibility to, to your wife and to your family to, to do that and to, and to keep yourself in composure and to be patient, but to be firm too. You know, I just wouldn't, I just wouldn't accept these kinds of things. I mean, I know it's very hard. I, I love my mother-in-law. I have a lovely mother-in-law. I know people who have had very bad mother-in-laws. I know mother-in-laws who have destroyed marriages. Luckily, you're not at that point yet, but I generally agree with your wife. And I think that you've got to be firmer, but do not lose your uh, cool. A, a man does not 
fall out of control. You know, part of being a man is being being in control. But I would I would be firm and and clear and uh, recognize that you're you know you're in charge of your family. Not your your mother in law is not the head of your family. The rest of the show continues now. We have a reporter who's on the ground. In the Holy Land, uh, a correspondent for I-24 News who has been giving wall-to-wall coverage. She's been as in it and on the front lines as anyone can be of this major war breaking out that could be the beginning of World War III. So the rest of the show continues now. Do not miss it. Become a member. Use code Knowles, Canada, at checkout for two months free on all annual plans.